Today's episode is brought to you by We Break You Buy. Interested in sports cards and memorabilia? Check out We Break You Buy on TikTok. We Break You Buy is a small operation run by three brothers offering spots for a chance at winning some incredible sports cards and memorabilia. That's We Break You Buy. Check it out today on TikTok. I'm your host, Patrick Darms. And I'm your co-host, Anton Paras. And yeah, this is it. This is our very special Christmas 2023 release. I do believe we are going to be releasing this on Christmas Day as our gift to the world. Yes, and not only Merry Christmas to our guests, but Patrick, Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Very excited to celebrate this with a very special recording. And oh, you know, I I I love our Pat and Anton classic episodes. Absolutely. Um, I do want to give a Merry Christmas message to you as well, Anton. It's been a tremendous year. Thank you. And not only that, but to any of our listeners who have been on the show, of course, a Merry Christmas to all our guests and just Merry Christmas one and all. Let's make sure to spread that cheer. Indeed, especially to Travis Hastings, guest of the show. He was on the Spectre episode. He was all set to appear on this episode with us, but work came a calling and he wasn't able to make it. So we're going to have him back uh, sometime soon. I know he's bummed because, you know, he missed out on the opportunity to talk about a Stanley Kubrick film, which doesn't come along very often and probably will not come along very often at all on this podcast. Well, you know what's going to happen is three different ghosts, one of uh, Christmas past, present and future are going to visit him and show him the error of his ways for um, missing a podcast recording. <laughs> oh, that's not fair. He had to work. But then that's what the ghosts are going to say. That's uh, true. Look how work is influenced <laughs> um, missing a podcast recording. See what and happens your when future. you turn down the opportunity to do something for free as opposed to money. I hope everyone is having a healthy and happy holiday. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, we hope that you're having a happy and healthy day regardless. Because there yes, are plenty of people um, that don't, and that's part of the reason why we're going to release this on Christmas. Because if you're not celebrating Christmas and you need something to do, pour yourself a glass of wine, a glass of scotch, maybe some maybe some cognac. That's what I like to enjoy on Christmas. There's and listen funny to enough, uh, why wasn't it better? And also, uh, there's also plenty of things still open on that's Christmas. True. That's true. Movie theaters are open. Chinese food restaurants. There we go. Get yourself a good feast. Carve that but, roast beast. Yes, right. I'm not going to be rhyming this episode, by the way. That was just a one-time thing. If you can work rhymes into our discussion about Eyes Wide Shut, by all means, please do. If I, <laughs> We'll see what I can fit in. Yeah. <laughs> um, do we want to get through any admin before we start to dive into this? Well, I just want to say the Yankees traded for Juan Soto, and I'm pretty happy about that. Right. Um, it's not really admin what? related to the show, but you know. Were there any other big splashes in free agency? Uh, Shohei Otani got paid. Yeah, did you see how that the structure of that deal, though? 
Yes, he, I've never really seen anything quite like that, and I'm not sure how that works, but good for him. So for, so for listeners that aren't aware, it's a 10-year deal, $700 million. Every year until about like year 9 or 10, he's getting paid only $2 million a year. Once and he doesn't get like the large lump sum until about nine, year nine or year ten. So he's basically just giving them a loan. Yeah, pretty good on his part. But as far as admin uh, for the show goes, I don't really have anything pressing other than, you know, the YouTube. We may hit 400 listeners by New Year's. It's possible we're, we're, within, we're within striking distance. So that's very exciting. Very, very exciting. And I like to think that we've already succeeded because originally we had thought it would be three. The goal was 300 by the end of the year. Right. So at this point, we're just we're just exceeding the goal. It's all gravy, baby. Uh, Anton, you seen any good movies shows lately as we as we start to wrap up 2023? Well, I am excited to share that I have queued up the crown. I've heard a lot of hype. You've definitely talked uh, uh, quite a bit about the crown so i'm excited to give that a watch and on the other side of things um roku tv has every season of two broke girls and so that has been tv to put on that is pretty mindless (laughs) yeah i um i to be honest with you i was uh, not expecting you to mention that show of all the ones that you could have so wow i know so merry christmas (laughs) Uh, i haven't seen anything lately but i am looking forward to a couple of movies that are coming up soon Uh, i'm hearing really good things about this new godzilla movie Mm -hmm. uh it's getting rave reviews so it's you know doesn't sound like something we will be covering on the podcast but uh i do like myself a good godzilla film because there certainly aren't many good godzilla films it's fun to have this episode too and as we We'll, we'll touch on this a little bit more. There's a lot of movies coming out in 2024 that it's kind of a it's it's interesting to th- it's interesting to see where studios are going. We have a lot of franchise continuations. We have the Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes continuing that series. Um, we have another Godzilla film, um, Godzilla versus Kong. It's the second one in that series. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have. The next Ghostbuster film, which uh, I don't think anyone saw coming. Or wanted. Or wanted. Yeah. But we do have some interesting films coming that, uh, one, just kind of, it, it does indicate that there's a bit of a slowdown in certain field, or if in some, from a strategic point from some studios. Deadpool 3 is the only Marvel movie coming out in 2024. So that's interesting. We have Borderlands, a video game, actually with a movie adaptation, which we've talked about on the podcast before. uh, Video game movie adaptations do not typically do well. No, I am curious for this one. No. I am. And then there's, in terms of series, there's also the, there is the Fallout uh, series that will be, uh, that will be on streaming. So that's an, an interesting one, another beloved franchise uh, in the sci-fi realm. So I will definitely be checking that out because I'm a big fan of the Fallout series. There's a film coming out in February on Apple TV Plus that's called Argyle. I am very much looking forward to that. I think it looks quite promising. It's like 
It's a film by Matthew Vaughn, starring Bryce Dallas Howard and a number of other actors that uh, I'm very fond of. It is uh, is sort of a uh, spy comedy thriller, it looks like. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm looking forward to that. And there's a few other films coming out next year that uh, that I'm going to be seeing, definitely. And then lastly, at least from my end, um, one of my favorite newer directors uh, in the past in the past decade has to be Robert Eggers. He directed The Witch, The Lighthouse, and he's actually coming out with a film in 2024, Nosferatu, adaptation and or of it's a, a remake of the original 192022 classic and there's going to be a lot of parallels to the original film with the aesthetic um i don't i think that they're playing with no like a uh, dialogue in the film similar to the 192022 classic if you've seen anything by eggers his stuff is haunting and it's um amazing how he builds tension um in the films and just beautiful uh, world building and setting so i'm excited it has a lot of really great names attached and i don't know if it's something that would be in the in the running for the oscars but i really would love to see robert eggers in that discussion go team eggers there's also apparently another lord of the rings movie coming out that's animated what (laughs) yeah i don't i don't know how that's gonna work it's not coming out for about a year so i actually have it on our list of films to cover because i'm I'm just assuming it won't be good because it's not based on obviously one of the lord of the rings books it's it's called the war of the rohirrim it takes place before the events of lord of the rings and it involves uh the kingdom of rohan and so i don't know i wanted i wanted to pull out a stat because you know robert eggers doesn't have a ton of films directed under his belt but he has a really high batting average just looking at his three films the witch 90 percent on rotten tomatoes is that the budget yeah the vivich yes okay 90 percent on rotten tomatoes a budget of four million dollars box office of 40 million um the lighthouse 90 percent rotten tomatoes um, not as much about like a nine million dollar difference on an eleven million dollar budget, and then the Northman, ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but that one actually lost money at the box office. So critically, it looks like they're doing great, but some of the films not big budget or not doing well at the box office. But team team Eggers, this, yeah, I'm team I'm team Eggers all the way. Yeah, clearly but, he brought it back to him. Yeah, but uh, this isn't. This isn't an episode about Robert Eggers, is it? It is not. It is an episode about a Stanley Kubrick film. This is going to be good. Yes. Uh, Let's cue in the uh, Christmas music. Uh, After Dr. Bill Harford's wife, Alice, admits to having sexual fantasies about a man she met, Bill becomes obsessed with having a sexual encounter of his own. He discovers an underground sexual group and attends one of their meetings and quickly discovers that he is in over his head. Released on July 16th, 1999 by Stanley Kubrick Productions and Warner Brothers, directed by Stanley Kubrick, screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Frederick Raphael, based on the novella Trom Novelle, a.k.a. Dream Story, by Arthur Schnitzler, starring Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Sidney Pollack, Todd Field, Marion Richardson, Vanessa Shaw, 
and raid Serbetcha. A budget of $65 million, which is $120 million adjusted for inflation, and box office at $162 million, $299 million adjusted for inflation. Pat, why did you choose this movie? This is part of our Christmas mini season. I was trying to find Christmas-themed movies to cover that weren't, you know, uh, stereotypically classical Christmas films. The previous two that we covered, Home Alone 2 and The Grinch, are uh, very closely associated with Christmas. Eyes Wide Shut is not. It is about as unconventional as a Christmas movie gets. I don't really even know that it's technically a Christmas movie, but it takes place during Christmas. So, yes. I think it gets in on a technicality. I just thought it would be really fun to cover a Kubrick film because, you know, he's one of the most celebrated, famous filmmakers of all time. This film, his final film, is one of the biggest WTF movies of all time. It was too tempting to, to, to not bring this to the podcast. You know, Kubrick, he is probably the only filmmaker who has a real mystique to him. He was a very private individual. His work has inspired, you know, countless other filmmakers. And this film in particular has inspired all kinds of theories, all kinds of discussions. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know that you could call Kubrick a director. He was so much more than that. You know, filmmaker really is the right <laughs> yes. word. You know, he didn't make that many films, though. He always took years off between projects. He was never motivated by money. He only chose things that really were very personal to him and that he was very passionate about. So, you know, this was, uh, again, probably a very unconventional choice for the podcast, but I just thought it would be really fun to cover. What do you think of Kubrick? I love Stanley Kubrick. The Shining is one of my personal favorite films of all time. And I remember when I watched it, that particular film as a kid, it really stuck with me because there are horror films that are scary, maybe haunting, but that film, it was very haunting. And something like that being able to impact me as a kid, it was great to be able to revisit it as an adult. And I will say this across all of his films, Kubrick brings a certain magic to his films that, like you said, I, I totally agree with this. It's not fair to just call him a director, a filmmaker, um, almost a magician, because he really just has such command. And while well, he takes so much control and so much direction on the sets of his films to create what we see on the screen. And we have a few examples that I know that we'll talk about of uh, how he seems to manipulate things behind the scenes. But at the end of the day, it's all for this man's very strong vision of what he wants. I love Kubrick as well. I, I think he's properly rated, which is to say almost everyone you talk to considers him one of the greatest filmmakers ever. I've never really heard anyone say he's overrated or he's underrated. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's very rare you actually find a filmmaker like that where everyone, for the most part, as far as I know, is, is it really in you know complete agreement about him. Like if you're studying filmmaking in any kind of a academic uh, setting, his name is always going to come up. It's always worthy of the praise. Almost all of his films are fascinating. You know, I don't love them all equally. And I don't even think I've actually seen all of his films. He only directed 13 films. 
but I've seen mm-hmm. most of them. You know, some of them, 2001, The Shining, Dr. Strangelove, Paths of Glory, they're like some of my favorite films. Yeah. I agreed. feel like some of his others, you have to be in a particular mood to watch. Like, I, I can't just throw on a Clockwork Orange. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's a yeah, Tuesday. <laughs> Let me watch Barry Lyndon. Yeah, that's not a casual just sit down and pop and eat some popcorn. I guess if if you were going to say one thing about him, I wouldn't ever call him an entertainer. There are Hmm. very entertaining things in his films, but that's not what you think of the way you think of like Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese as entertainers, right? And and that's no knock on them, right? Mm -hmm. Kubrick was just a very different kind of a filmmaker. And that brings us to Eyes Wide Shut, his 13th and final film. It was released shortly after his death from a heart attack. I thought he was older, but he was only 70 years old. It's a shame. Yeah. What a loss. To say that he he could have kept going at least even on that film, because even right, even when he finished it, that is to say there was still probably a bit more he could find to edit. Yes. Yes. We will certainly get into that. But yeah, Eyes Wide Shut, even before its release, it was getting a lot of buzz. Kubrick was, again, a a very uh, famously private individual. The fact that he was doing another film was getting buzzed. The fact that real-life married couple Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were starring in it, that was a huge deal. You know, Tom Cruise was, at that point in the late 1990s, probably the biggest movie star in the world. Nicole Kidman was very famous, obviously. Maybe not quite on the level of her husband, but she, you know, she was and is a huge star. And this film had a very lengthy production, which we're going to get into. So we simply had to cover this film. We were going to cover this one way or another. So, I, you know, I just decided why not cover it for Christmas? Well, excellent choice, my friend. I think that this is quite the holiday film, quite the Christmas film. And they really make you know it when you watch the film that it's set during Christmas time. They do. And there's, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of Christmas lights. And a, a fun one to dig into for the holiday. Yeah, I got to say, I hadn't seen it in a long time, and it was so fascinating to revisit. Now that I am married and mm-hmm. trying to start a family with my wife, it's just a very different scenario to watch the film in, right? A very a very different lens. Yeah. yeah, you don't watch this when you're younger and completely step into the shoes of the, uh, of the main character and know, have, get a sense of what they're going through. But no. as an adult, like these themes, they they hit home. I saw it when I was way too young. I was, I think, about twelve years old, and it, it was just on HBO a lot. And we, you know, we had <laughs> HBO, and I, I I had no idea what yeah. it was really. And let me just say, when when Tom Cruise, you know, walks into the mansion, I was just like, oh, oh, okay, right. And uh, I mean, any twelve year old would only have very clear takeaways from this film, right? We're we're not took talking about uh, the level of depth that Kubrick goes into with the theme themes in this film. I'm just going to get this out of the way now as as a young man who was very much taken with Nicole Kidman having seen her in Batman Forever. I appreciated the opening shot of this film very much as at at 12 years old. Stanley Kubrick was not playing around. He was not. You know, seeing it at that age, you don't really get a lot out of it like you said, right? Like you have to be an adult to really like absorb this movie the way it is it is meant to be what is your history with this film anton yeah so i'd originally seen this film in college and my experience with 
eyes wide shut even before seeing the film was just knowing it was quote unquote that orgy movie and not really know like one I was surprised before I watched that it was a Kubrick film you know I was very unaware I'd known that it was it's been referenced in various pop culture after seeing it for the first time like you know I throughout you know my college years up to now also right a, a big movie nerd and I could see this was something special it's one of those movies that has you it keeps you thinking days even after you've watched it and so it was super fun to be able to rewatch it recently and like you said now that you know I'm married um it it, it definitely has a different level of depth it sits differently after you watch it and even today, I feel like this film is just celebrated so much throughout pop culture, whether it's, I think I sent you over, um, there was a scene from one of the later seasons of the Venture Brothers, shouts out to the Venture Brothers, referencing this film, Robot Chicken has referenced this film, and these are, and, and these are shows that I don't think are typically geared towards like whoever the main audience of this kind of film would be. But it does really stick with people and it has such strong ties to like popular culture and just movie culture in general. So I'm, I'm really excited to dig in here. That Venture Brothers clip you sent me was fantastic. Yes. Uh, let's dig in then. Production history. The origins of this film go back to 1968. Just after finishing 2001 A Space Odyssey, Kubrick was looking for his next project. And he ended up reading Arthur Schnitzler's novel, Dream Story. He became interested in adapting it. And with the help of writer Jay Cox, he purchased the film rights. Uh, I'm going to assume neither of us have read that. Um, Kubrick's initial idea was to turn it into a sex comedy with either Woody Allen or Steve Martin in the lead role. Let's just pause for a moment and think about what kind of film this would have been with Woody Allen. And then let's try to purge that from our minds. Yeesh. Being the notoriously slow worker that he was, none of his ideas for it materialized until 1994 when he finally hired another writer, Frederick Raphael, to work on the screenplay with him. They decided to update the setting from early 20th century Vienna to then present day New York City. Kubrick had Raphael remove the Jewishness of the main character, instead reimagining him as a Harrison Ford type even going so far as to give him the surname Hartford as a reference to the actor. One of the conditions for Warner Brothers approving the project was for Kubrick to cast a major star. So he considered Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger for the roles of Bill and Alice. That would have been interesting. I would have wanted to see it. That, that's actually interesting too. Yes, definitely. Tom Cruise was in England because his wife, Nicole Kidman, was there filming the portrait of a lady, and the pair of them decided to visit Kubrick at his estate. During the meeting, the filmmaker offered them the roles. Cruise and Kidman signed open-ended contracts, agreeing to work on this project until Stanley Kubrick released them from it, however long that turned out to be. Jennifer Jason Lee and Harvey Keitel were cast in supporting roles, and they filmed several scenes before dropping out due to scheduling conflicts. Harvey Keitel, who was playing Victor Ziegler, he told a different story saying that he grew fed up with Kubrick's endless takes and he simply walked off the movie. He was replaced by Sidney Pollack. I will just say this, Anton. There are mm -hmm. alternative theories about why Pollack replaced Keitel. None of them are confirmed, but you can look this up yourself if you are curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jennifer yeah, Jason I mean Lee was replaced by Marie Richardson. Any more Kaitel thoughts? I was going to say, uh, I've always uh, enjoyed Kaitel's films. Uh, oh, same. Yeah. And hearing that story, I guess I'm not surprised. This was also about the Twilight 
of his years in terms of when he was peaking in Hollywood. So, yeah. Yeah. And as Curious, we know from like, films like Bad yeah. Lieutenant, he was not afraid to get involved in risque material. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But I'm happy with yeah. how this turned out. I love Sidney Pollack in this role, which we're going to talk about him later. Mm-hmm. Back to the production history. In 2019, it was revealed that Kate Blanchett provided the voice of the mysterious masked woman at the orgy party. She did her dubbing after Kubrick's death during post-production. Now, given Kubrick's fear of flying, the entire film was shot in England at none other than Pinewood Studios. That's right. Our favorite film studio. The sets that were constructed included a detailed recreation of Greenwich Village. I have to say it looks nothing like New York City, but that's beside the point. <laughs> uh, Larry Smith, who had first served as a gaffer on both Barry Lyndon and The Shining, was promoted to director of photography. Wherever possible, Smith made use of various light sources visible in the shots, such as lamps and Christmas tree lights. But when this was insufficient, he used Chinese paper ball lamps to softly brighten the scene. It is interesting because there are Christmas lights in nearly every scene in the film. Kubrick's perfectionism went as far as sending workmen to Manhattan to measure street widths and note newspaper vending machine locations. Real footage of Manhattan was shot and rear projected behind Cruz for walking shots. I wonder if Cruz and Kidman came to regret signing those open-ended contracts because the shoot went on for much longer than expected. Principal photography began in November 1996 and finally wrapped up in June 1998. The Guinness World Records recognized it as the longest constant movie shoot that ran, quote, for over 15 months, a period that included an unbroken shoot of 46 weeks, end quote. Nobody had much to say about the making of this. All Cruz said was that playing Dr. Bill Harford had been unpleasant. Kubrick's perfectionism led to script pages being rewritten on the set, with most scenes requiring numerous takes. The 13-and-a-half-minute billiard room scene between Tom Cruise and Sidney Pollack took about three weeks of filming with nearly 200 takes. And this is the experience that allegedly caused Keitel to quit. Sounds awful. Nicole Kid, <laughs> Yeah, Absolutely. Nicole Kidman revealed that her explicit scenes with a naval officer, played by Gary Goba, were filmed over three days and that Kubrick wanted them to be almost pornographic. Cruz was barred from the set for these sessions. The film is notoriously known for its secrecy during production, and the secrecy even divided the two main stars, Cruz and Kidman. To exaggerate the distrust between their fictional husband and wife, Kubrick would direct each other separately and forbid them to share notes. The color was enhanced by push-processing the film reels, um, known as emulsion, which helped bring out the intensity of the color. After shooting had been completed, Kubrick entered a prolonged post-production process lasting almost a full year. He did all of the post-work out of his house, which is something that is basically unheard of for a major motion picture. And on March 1st, 1999, Kubrick showed a cut to Cruz, Kidman, and the Warner Brothers executives. He died six days later. And here we have Eyes Wide Shut. Time to talk about why wasn't it better? We got to start with the elephant in the room for our first reason, right? Kubrick and the production. The big question surrounding this film is whether or not this is a finished film. Ever mm-hmm. since the film's release, debate has raged over whether or not the finished product was really Kubrick's or not, right? This is by far the most talked about topic whenever Eyes Wide Shut comes up. 
Now, the studio made it clear that Kubrick had completed his final cut before passing away. Nonetheless, the film was still in the final stages of post-production. Therefore, you know, it was completed by the studio in collaboration with Kubrick's estate. Everyone involved has insisted that anything done after his death was purely technical in nature, right? But Mm -hmm. decisions regarding sound mixing, scoring, color correction, they were made without Kubrick's direct input, input, which is worth pointing out. Honestly, Anton, I don't really have a strong opinion on it. It's one of those things that it is fun to talk about, but there just isn't a clear answer. Yep. No, you're totally right. I will say this. We do know that Kubrick has a history of continuously editing and tweaking his films up until the last minute before their release. You know, there's certainly stuff that you can find online, unofficial testimony from those who claim to be close with Kubrick, who consider the film unfinished. Take from that what you will. It is fair to say, you you can say that Kubrick is a perfectionist, right? Eccentric, some would say. And even, I think that is why it it is fun to argue, what could he have ended up doing to the film to really finally execute on his final vision? Because the man wasn't afraid to drive actors on his sets crazy to get the take that he wanted. So that is to say, who knows what... the film could have maybe taken a complete 180 and shift in tone with just a few slight adjustments that he'd want to make to really get his vision right. Definitely. There is a quote from Nicole Kidman that I, I did want to read because I think this is telling. She said, quote, there was a lot of interest in Eyes Wide Shut before it was released, continued. And for Stanley to have died before the film opened, well, it all felt so dark and strange. Stanley had sent over the cut he considered done to us. Tom and I watched it in New York, and then he died, end quote. I choose to give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't really know why she would lie about it. I do think that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that this was as close to a finished film as we could have gotten from him. Now, this guy Mm -hmm. named Jan Harlan, or Jan Harlan, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but he was Kubrick's brother-in-law and an executive producer on this film. He worked with Kubrick for, uh, for decades. He reported that Kubrick was, quote, very happy with the film, end quote, and he considered it to be, quote, one of his greatest, or he considered it to be, quote, his greatest contribution to the art of cinema, end quote. I don't know how far we want to go down this rabbit hole, but there is a ton of content you can read about this stuff online. Mm-hmm. There is one major edit, though, that we should talk about, and this is something that was done with Kubrick's consent. They planned this in advance, hoping to avoid an NC-17 rating. Warner Brothers digitally altered the orgy scene for the film's American release by by blocking out graphic sexuality using additional figures. This received a lot of criticism, most notably from Roger Ebert, as people were quick to point out that Kubrick would have never cared about this film's rating. But from what I read, this was something that Kubrick approved of beforehand. Yeah. I'm sure there was a, as much of an artist as Kubrick is, he also knows it is a business and to get the film out there um, to get an NC 17 rating, especially, you know, in 2000 or in um, 1999, it, it would be difficult to get it distributed. Yeah, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Clockwork Orange had an X rating, and it and it 
impacted it in a negative way, even though it ended up being a very successful film. I could be wrong about that, though. It sounds it sounds right. Um, we can yeah. always double check, but I agree with you. It's more of a strategic decision on Kubrick's, you know, from from Kubrick's side and understanding this is the lay of the land. I also read that Kubrick researched films like Showgirls in preparation for this film, which is funny. He researched it, quote unquote. <laughs> researched it. Yeah, that's, that's what I read. Enough about that, right? Let's talk about the production a little bit. Um, I do really like the way this is filmed. Very dreamlike. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is like some kind of twisted Christmas fantasy. I, I, I love the Christmas lights in every scene. His films are always shot like perfectly, right? He's, you know, he started off as yes. a photographer before he became a filmmaker. And I mean, all of his films, they just, they look so good. This is no exception. Yep. Uh, and I think that's one of the, like you said, it's one of the greatest things is about Kubrick's films is the world that he puts on the screen the image the images are just so vivid so vast it really really does stick with you like the mansion scenes um it, you feel like you're walking through the mansion and you feel the 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 weight of it right 100% if i was going to like explain kubrick to anyone who wasn't familiar with him you're probably getting the best cinematography and production design like ever put to film. Just pick one of his movies and it's yeah. just going to be some of the best of those two things you've ever seen. To say nothing of the story, to say nothing of the acting, to say nothing of the editing, right? Like, have you ever seen Barry Lyndon? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to say it's like not the best paced film. It's pretty slow. And mm-hmm. there's some scenes, you know, it's, frankly, there's some scenes that are boring. I do think it's a really good film, but... Even with the the slowness of that movie, I remember the first time I watched it, I remember thinking to myself, like, this is boring, but I have never seen anything like this before. And it's so good to look at that I can't turn it off. Right. And it, it's funny because you even think of a film like Barry Lyndon in Kubrick's filmography. It, it's nothing like any of his other films, no, right? In terms no, of no. W- what, but but at the same time, you can look at it and say, yeah, that's a Kubrick film. I would say the only thing in Eyes Wide Shut that looks iffy to me, some of that rear projection stuff when Tom Cruise is walking mm-hmm. around the streets, it, it's 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 not great looking. You know, it's only a handful of shots, so it, it's not. I don't think it takes away from the film, but it's it, he's clearly just not in the West Village. Now, I mm-hmm. say this, I, I'm a little biased. I did I did not live in New York City, but I lived in Jersey City, and I frequented the West Village. And it's just, it was very obvious to me that it just wasn't filmed there. Fair enough. Calling it like it is. And we also get some spooky piano music. Yes. And very, very fitting, right? Absolutely fitting. Especially the uh, Russian romantic pieces that are playing throughout the film. Great classical (laughs) pieces. Yes. The musical choices he makes are always perfect. Like whatever that music that's playing during the mansion party scene, it's. I have no idea what it is, but it's perfect. It's funny. There's this word that keeps coming up whenever we're talking about Kubrick, and it's a perfect. And we talked about it before. Kubrick's a bit of a perfectionist. When you said how people would describe Stanley Kubrick, from my own perspective, I think there is a bit of a mad scientist when I think of Stanley Kubrick. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. And what I wanted to touch on with the production and just how he directs his films for any listeners that aren't as familiar, 
uh, we we touched on it earlier that Kubrick, um, you know, really made sure to pull the strings behind, uh, you know, behind the camera on the set, um, deliberately manipulating things to ensure that what he got on camera was what he wanted. Now we'll we'll talk about we'll talk a, a bit more later about this with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. But even just wanting to talk about like his earlier films, just to get that scene from The Shining, you know, here's Johnny with uh Jack Nicholson, you know, uh axing his way through the door. They filmed that scene 127 times to get that that scene right. Now that sounds like okay, you filmed something 127 times so that the man actually goes crazy. Talking about actually going crazy in that same film, um, he isolated to draw. Uh, he isolated Shelley Duvall on set to really increase her paranoia, to actually increase her fear. He'd randomly have um, a shotgun um, shot on set to make sure that she was always on edge whenever that they whenever they were filming scenes for that particular here's Johnny scene talk about 127 scenes she was so authentically distressed by her by her experience on the set she had an emotional breakdown so that is to say Shelley Duvall's mind was broken and again that is all for Stanley Kubrick to get the perfect shot well I, I in a way, we're all grateful for it. Sorry, Shelley. <laughs> exactly. I, I found a Christopher Nolan quote about this film, Eyes Wide Shut. He was specifically talking about how several things had to be finished post Kubrick's death. So Nolan said, quote, it's a little bit hampered by very, very small and superficial, almost technical flaws that I'm pretty sure he would have ironed out, end quote. Oh, really? Nolan, you mean like sound mixing where you can't hear what the actors are saying? Like technical details like that? Sorry, I just had to get that get that <laughs> off my chest before we talk about Oppenheimer next season, which is coming. I, it's coming. Well, it, it it made me think about Bane. <laughs> or what's the uh, uh, Tenet, that pile of crap? Yep, Tenet. Yeah. On the record, I did not understand that film. No one did. If you tell me you understood it without going to Wikipedia, I, I don't believe you. Well, you have me on the record, and <laughs> we'll eventually talk about it. But yeah, I know. I'm not looking very forward to it. Very fascinating production on the film. Uh sure. Not as fascinating as this production. I was actually sorry, I was actually talking about Eyes Wide Shut. I was so done with Tenet. <laughs> oh, oh, excellent. Outstanding. <laughs> Let's get to the next reason why this wasn't better, which yeah. is the story and the plot. Anton, do you think it's all a dream? Am I dreaming now? No. Are the plants in front of me, were the, the same ones in reality, or did they change in the dream? Are there so many Christmas decorations that they're all blending together? Are the mannequins around me wearing the same thing that they wore before? Who knows? Uh, you can make your Illuminati jokes now if you want. Well, we can't, we, we can't make the jokes until we have the secret password, Fidelio. Fidelio. There are certainly scenes that seem to imply reality is being twisted. There's so many I, countless debates about this. I don't think it's a dream, but I there's I, what do I know? Well, so I've read a lot online just about if you look at different scenes, whether it's Tom Cruise's character going into the same bedroom, finding things that are not how they were previously, even to the even closely to for example, a lamp being a different kind of lamp in the scene than it was previously the type of lights being strung up on as decoration 
um, versus where he'd been previously before mannequins, you know, like I referenced earlier, um, posing differently or wearing something different uh, from, from the previous scene. And it starts, it, it all starts to shape up. Of course, that you ask the question, how reliable is the narrator or how reliable is the main character in his psyche that we go through? And it, it is all very Kubrick of being able to ask that question. And, I don't know if it's supposed to necessarily have an answer. I think if it was supposed to have a very clear answer, that's very boring, so, which is why like, I love that it's open to interpretation. As far as the plot to this movie goes, I do think it's pretty hard to nail down. If you're going to describe the plot of this to someone, right? Like, what would you say? Like, okay, so Tom Cruise's character, he, he feels bad about his wife fantasizing about cheating on him, and then he attempts to cheat on her? But he gets caught up in like a satanic rich person secret sex society conspiracy. I think that for the last thing that we maybe left out is that he, he he realized he couldn't hang and that he wasn't up to the standard of this rich orgy sex society. Couldn't hang. <laughs> he couldn't hang. <laughs> that is one way to put it. Yeah. That orgy scene was filmed at the country home, which belonged to the banking family, the Rothschilds. Had to throw that in there just for all the conspiracy folks. Oh, my gosh. Had to be People delivery, are love right? It. Oh yeah. Oh, a million percent. The big thing about the story: nearly two decades after the film was released, it received renewed attention due to its perceived similarities to the you know the Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking case. Oh yeah. And a lot of stuff has popped up online about the the connections to that. There is this theory online that Kubrick was really trying to tell another story to expose something far more sinister that the women are supposed to represent children this movie was made to shine a light on the global elite and the underground secret society stuff that they're members of i do think there's a lot of fire to that smoke i think the scene that supports this theory the most is when he returns i'm talking about tom cruise when he mm -hmm. returns the tuxedo to the costume shop and mr millich is is basically trying to pimp out his own daughter, if she even is his daughter. Pretty creepy. Super haunting. Yeah. And on that same theme of as Tom Cruise starts to explore and try to find like a go on his own, like Wizard of Oz adventure down the yellow brick sex road, um, it, it just leads to more and more depravity. And while it is an exploration of like relationship, sex, desire, an exploration of sex shows that there is like a depraved side of it. And I, I do see, you know, where the theory does align with there is, you know, sex trafficking is a huge issue. And it, it's especially haunting and terrifying when it does turn out to be true that Jeffrey Epstein had his own high profile sex trafficking scandal. So who knows if, if Kubrick was talking about Epstein? But that is to say, like you said, there's there's some fire to that smoke. I can tell you one thing. Epstein would have been at that party. Oh, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if Maxwell, he would... whatever the hell her name is. <laughs> exactly. Who, who was convicted of uh, tra trafficking girls to nobody. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because that, that's those are different podcasts. That cover yeah, those, those are different podcasts. There's a, there is just uh, a huge amount of information you can read about this yeah. online. There's other theories about this film, you know, that Kubrick died under mysterious circumstances, that Warner Brothers cut out an additional 20 minutes, that those scenes contain some pretty lewd content, yada, yada, yada. There isn't really any hard evidence to support this. K uh, Kubrick's own daughter has, has refuted this. 
Oh, sidebar, Anton. Well, it's probably is a coincidence, but who knows? Uh, Kubrick's daughter ended up becoming a Scientologist and uh, disassociated herself from the family. Interesting. I don't know what that has to do with this film, but I just wanted to bring it up. Yeah. No, I think it was a appropriate place to to bring it up. Thank you. <laughs> what is true is that Kubrick's films are full of symbolism, and this probably is as well. Yes, it is. There are those films that end up being so far out there that you have to ask yourself, what was that? And it's almost a bit too open-ended. I feel like there is a track here. There is, and there, it is a forest, and Kubrick has put out cr- the cookie crumbs to understand what exactly he's trying to say. And there's, there's fun in that. And I think as film fans, as, as real you know, movie nerds, that's enjoyable. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I, I do think that there is a track here. I think the plot is fairly linear. It unfolds pretty clearly, especially on the rewatch. And this is absolutely a movie that you can't you can't just watch once. You have to watch it a few times. Tom Cruise's character, Bill Hartford, I'm just gonna call him Tom Cruise because Bill Hartford's boring. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's like clearly well off, right? But I wouldn't call him rich, right? Like they have money. They live in a pretty huge apartment. Right. But compared to the people like Ziegler and, you know, whoever else was that party, like, you know, they're not even not even close. Mm-mm. And his character becomes the conduit for the audience, right? Our view into this world that people like us will never have access to, and I'm not even sure that we would want to. Like a secret world, a shadow world. His character gets a tiny glimpse into this world. And sees this different reality that they live in. Subject matter like that is always going to be fascinating because, because like you said, it's a rabbit hole. That is to say, a lot of questions come up about that 1%. Yes. I have some questions for you. Let's just go through them. Because mm-hmm. I want to see how you interpreted some of these things. So at, so at, the, at the opening Christmas party, right? Ziegler's Christmas party. It seems to imply that Bill and Alice are being pegged for some type of initiation. It it struck me as some kind of honeypot scheme, right? You have the two models who are clearly trying to seduce Tom Cruise, and then you have an older European sexpot guy who's trying to seduce Nicole Kidman. It's almost like they're trying to recruit them. I wasn't sure watching the scene again if they were tied to the greater society, but I think that's where... The film is is fantastic in that how does a conspiracy theory build in that you look and see where are the, where does the web of connection begin? And because you see intimacy, because you see what looks to be some sort of connection to eventually you are brought to the orgy, you can't help but think this has to be part of something bigger. And in that sense... When you see that scene, you start to have those thoughts. You've, you're essentially in uh, Tom Cruise's shoes thinking about his relationship with his wife and trying to build this bigger web of conspiracy. So in that way, Stanley Kubrick's won uh, because you, you're already trying to figure out how does this all fit in. I, I thought it was. I, yeah. I thought they were trying to initiate him. I think it's pretty safe to assume that a lot of the people who attended that Christmas party were also at the uh, quote unquote other party. That that European guy definitely yeah. was. He was definitely. Dead. Oh, oh, oh yeah. my gosh! Yeah, he's he's into some weird stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. I like when he uh, yeah. and Nicole Kidman says, "I think that's my champagne," and he's like, "Oh, I'm ab- absolutely Just, certain it is." <laughs> Just downs it. Yeah, it's like okay, <laughs> throwing 115 miles an hour. Sydney Pollock 
not really an actor. He always dabbled in acting. He's obviously mm-hmm. known as a director. By the way, one of my all-time favorite directors with a very high batting average. Mm-hmm. I think he does an amazing job at playing a super rich guy who doesn't live with rules. He's, I'm so glad he replaced <laughs> yeah. Harvey Keitel. He is so great in this role. He's basically in, what, two scenes? Yeah, but he plays it perfectly. Oh, it's right? so great. He He's that kind of guy that's like, there was definitely a kind of like businessman or a kind of like rich person back in that day that what you think of the, the 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 kind that would like shake your hand slap like slap you on the arm and say how are you doing you son of a bitch and and then you know what i mean oh yeah 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 you old and that was him buck. exactly and that was him but then you see he's he's got a dark edge <laughs> did you get a glimpse of his house the exterior shot of his i'm underselling it by calling it a house it's somewhere i would guess on the upper west side or upper east side but I'm going to guess that's a $100 million house. Just about. Yeah. Probably Rothschild money. Rich enough that he has a office with a couch in his bathroom, or he has a bathroom in his office. But it looks like a bathroom with a desk and a couch in it, which I've never seen before in my life. Which is funny because before this, before you get even the, the party at Ziegler's place, you do get a lot of scenes, right, in the Hartford house. And even Which then, like watching that, right. And the, even then watching that, you get a sense like, wow, like this is someone very well off in New York. This gets you a lot. Like this shows me like a, a level of wealth. Yeah. It looks like they live in what amounts to a five or six bedroom house or apartment, I should say. Mm-hmm. That's what it, I think so. Which especially in New York, that is a pretty penny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 they don't explicitly say it, but I think it's very clear. He, I mean, he goes, so Tom Cruise's character, he is a doctor that goes on house calls, which is not common. That's not common at all. I actually looked it up. It is still a thing. It, it is something that absolutely you and I could never afford, but there are doctors that the, do this. Yes. It's for yeah. the rich and wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to borrow a succession term. Tom Cruise's character in this film is what? Tom Wamsgams referred to as the bottom of the top. Mm, yep, that makes sense. Um, what is up with Marion completely willing to give up her entire life for Tom Cruise? That's not creepy at all. Didn't seem realistic at all. I agree. It's also with the you worst felt- acting in the film, in my opinion. It's like soap opera level acting. And I think that's actually for someone like Kubrick, where you don't actually see a ton of unevenness in like acting from whoever he has in his films that must be on purpose that it was just so i don't know it it felt very like stiff or just like you said not great acting but maybe that lends itself to was this a dream sequence and this is actually more of tom cruise's character's psyche and how he wants to feel wanted yes that's a good way to put it next question for you um why would nick nightingale give bill the address to the to the orgy party like is he an idiot I mean, clearly he's an idiot. <laughs> clearly, clearly he is. There was definitely something about Nick's character that was a little funny. Well, he wasn't smart funny. enough to be a doctor. I don't know that he was smart enough to be a piano player either. Or just understand if you're getting brought into a secret society mansion that you probably shouldn't tell people that you are. 
Yeah, and that's this is my follow-up question to that. If you're going to give your friend that you haven't seen in 10 years the address to this uh, orgy party, right, maybe, maybe mention that it might be a ritualistic satanic sex call. I feel like that's a fairly important piece of information. I understand he was blindfolded, but he apparently could see enough of the party to describe the women to him. It's like maybe mention that it's like a, a satanic sex cult. That's a, you know, I think your friend might want to know that before he agrees to go here, get this conspiracy tinfoil hat on. It was on purpose. Uh, they knew that Nightingale would squeal that Nightingale wouldn't give the right details, but put uh, Dr. Harford on the right trail to actually look for and finally identify and infiltrate the sex orgy. And, with that, they also were baiting them by using Ziegler's party as a, just to get a sense of the couple. Again, but then why not just have Ziegler invite him? Like, why go through all this, the subterfuge of having Nick Nightingale run into him at a jazz club? Because it can't be as easy as that, because this is a conspiracy theory. <laughs> look, okay, the people... Oh, sorry, that I, I should have known yeah. that. You're right. I was going to say, look, the people that feed into this also think if you fold up dollars that the government's trying to tell you something. It's the Twin Towers on fire on the $20 bill. Because that's exactly what the government's thinking. Now that we've done it and we've covered it up, the next thing that we want to include is the clues. Agent Orange. (laughs) That was a real one. So the scene where um, Tom Cruise rents the tuxedo, right? And the, the two Japanese businessmen, they get caught with the shopkeeper's daughter. Like, that's staged, right? Like, that was not real. Did Mm-mm. they pay to get caught? It was weird. It's terrifying. Yeah, unanswerable. But I just wrote it down when I was watching the film. I'm like, what what's going on here? Okay, Anton, it's time to talk about the orgy. Do you think All this right. is like here their Christmas go. orgy? Do you think they have different themes for different times of year? Like they do like a spring one (laughs) and like a summer, like a 4th of July orgy, maybe one for Thanksgiving with some cornucopias. What do you think? So folks who have watched the film, they may have noticed this. The whole film is just Christmas threw up on every wall, right? Christmas decorations everywhere. But the only scenes that didn't have any Christmas in it on the compound at the orgy. No Christmas decorations anywhere. I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're not Christians. Right. (laughs) There we go. They they, they don't even want to celebrate a secular Christmas. (laughs) I can't can't help but think uh, another reference to Eyes Wide Shut. (laughs) It's always sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> when uh, uh, Frank brings Dennis to an orgy of the rich and powerful, and it's just a buffet. Uh, I can't even imagine what the after party's like. I mean, if that's the regular party, like, good heavens. Oh, they just get food trucks brought in. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, have, again, we're Getting we're, a we're caterer thinking... is, like, really awkward. They have to, like, sign the right one, <laughs> the NDA and everything. But again, we're thinking about it in very, like, not ultra rich terms i'm thinking about this of like what i would have wanted is like a food truck but for them they're like let's just buy a restaurant (laughs) i'm sure they have live-in chefs at that mansion yeah they don't even need caterers we're we're just we're too poor to even comprehend what the logistics of that goes into this thing yeah i i think that there probably is a level of spending at that once you get to that level that it's just not relatable (laughs) no so on the latest rewatch i was watching this entire sequence in a very different way i was paying very close attention to tom cruise and what he's doing because you know one of the one of the biggest questions about this this um 
scene is how does the girl Mandy identify him as an outsider, right? She doesn't see him arrive, right? And like, it's often described as a plot hole, right? Like, well, how does she, if he has a mask on, how does she know he doesn't belong there, right? Like, obviously they see him arrive in a taxi, right? Mm -hmm. So that gives him away. And they, you know, they say a couple other, Ziegler later tells him a couple other things that gave him away, but he's doing everything wrong from the very second that he walks in there. For any of their listeners, if you rewatch this movie, pay very close attention. From what I can tell, he's the only person there that's there by himself. Everybody else appears to either be with another, at least one other person, right? There's a lot of couples. There's a lot of groups. They obviously know each other for the most part, right? But if you watch Tom Cruise carefully, he's doing every single thing wrong. He's there by himself. He's really the only person who's wandering around. Everyone else is either watching the festivities or you know participating in them. But he's just kind of like meandering around from room to room. And I think it, it's, it's really interesting to rewatch this, this, this film, not just for the, you know, the festivities, right? That's honest, honestly, that's like the least interesting part about the film for me at this point. But it's just his behavior from mm-hmm. the very second he arrives indicates that he doesn't belong there, even though yeah. he knew the password. No, you're, you're totally right. I still remember just, it's so great how they were able, how, how Kubrick was able to capture just... I mean, I personally just felt so uncomfortable and just the tension of those scenes of just what's going to happen next. This is bizarre. It's wild. Like, I've just never seen another movie like this, not just for that sequence, but just yeah. everything else. Like, I, It's completely unique. Yeah. Everyone who's listening who hasn't seen it, do yourself a favor, like check it out just because this is referenced in so many films just because of the staying power and its influence and again conspiracy yeah so i'm going to assume yeah. most of the listeners have seen it though if you're going to be listening to a podcast about eyes mm-hmm. wide shut you like you probably have seen it or they've seen house party 2023 and saw that there was also a reference to eyes wide shut in that film uh i, I missed that one but i'll take your word for it yeah don't watch it don't ever watch it mask guy who nods at bill when he arrives, that's got to be Ziegler, right? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's what everyone seems to think. When Bill, sorry, I'm just going to call him Tom Cruise. When he gets brought into the big room and he gets exposed by the leader, I found it amusing how not everyone at the party is in the room. There's still plenty of rooms filled with people, you know, doing their thing. Doing their thing. That's the best way to I like it. how they might have like a protocol like, all right, look, if anybody ever shows up who doesn't belong... We just need like 50 people to stand in the main room. The rest of you, keep the party going. The 50 of us will handle the thing. We'll threaten him and make him take his clothes off. But the rest of you, just make sure the party keeps going. Yeah, the I, I just love the thought of just like, one, what's going on in his head as that's all going on? All of these mass robed people staring him down. You must just be like, oh, what have I done? What have I done? How do I get out of this? <laughs> I was trying yeah. to figure out where in upstate New York it is, but then I realized it was filmed in England, so... You're right. It was... Yeah, uh, there's nothing really it, to do there. Do you think they were going to kill him? I actually... I don't think they were. I don't either. I think that everything was a test. Everything was a test to get him to be at the party, to be... To get him to dip his toes into it. I don't think that they were actually going to kill him. I think they killed Nick Nightingale. Yeah, especially after watching it the sec, uh, the yeah, the second time fully. Yeah, 
They for sure killed that girl. That's what I think. Some people don't think that. Some people do think that Ziegler's that explanation she, makes sense, but no, it's a it's a clear reference to a cover up. Yeah, and again, leading to theories of conspiracy, and then you find yourself in the main character's shoes, thinking about the conspiracy of it all. This is the reason why I think her death was not an accidental overdose. Because I did not really put a lot of thought into this, but on the last rewatch, if you freeze frame it when Bill is reading the newspaper article, it mentions that the girl Mandy, her name's Mandy, quote, she had not been seen since 4 a.m. when she returned to her hotel accompanied by two men, dot, dot, dot. Police have been unable to locate the two men, continued. Her sister told the Post, the overdose must have been an accident. Mandy and I were as close as sisters can get. We didn't have any secrets. If there had been anything wrong, she would have told me, end quote. That screams cover up to me because that newspaper article basically comes out like a day after her death, which by the way, the way like um, coroners and toxicology reports work, there's no way they could determine that within a day. Mm-hmm. That take It usually takes days, if not weeks, to get a toxicology report. So yeah, I think so the someone, whole thing was a cover up. Yeah. And the fact that the article mentioned the two men, that made me immediately think of when Tom Cruise goes to Nick Nightingale's hotel and the uh, desk clerk tells him that he had checked out in a hurry with two men. Yeah. Sounds like a cover up to me. Yeah. I think the whole thing's pretty real. I love what uh, Sidney Pollock's character has to say about it. Quote, listen, Bill, I don't think you realize what kind of trouble you were in last night. Who do you think those people were? Those were not just ordinary people there. If I told you their names, I'm not going to tell you their names. But if I did, I don't think you'd sleep so well. And then he later he says, this, this is my favorite quote, life goes on. It always does until it doesn't. But you know that, don't you? And then one Jeez. thing that annoyed me about that, Anton, that scene just ends. I'm talking about the scene, the billiard scene. Mm-hmm. I, sorry, I needed more there from Kubrick. Like, how does, how does the rest of the conversation with Ziegler go? There was so much they just left on that billiard table. And honestly, so well done, right? Like, hats off to Sidney Pollock. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, he's, I'm, I'm telling you, like, I, I think we all lucked out that Harvey Keitel walked off the set. Yeah. I mean, as much as I do enjoy me some Harvey, the wolf, uh, Oh, I love Harvey Keitel, yeah, but I, yeah. I, I think S- the right Pollock decision an was amazing made job. here. Yeah, the right decision was yeah. made here. Absolutely. We're actually going to touch on this as we talk about Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, but I think it's important that even though we've spoken a lot about conspiracy, cover-ups, one of the key things about this film is how much it analyzes relationships how much it analyzes, how we think about our partners and our relationships, how much we get into our own heads and relationships. And then I think like that's what feeds into the conspiracy and the analogy of this greater conspiracy always begs a question of when does one partner love another more than the other? What leads to what, what leads uh, to infidelity? And I feel like those kinds of questions, those that analysis of relationship and the layers that they peel as they look at it is really what what extra fascinating with this film. Yeah, I agree with that. I never really got the impression this was just like a secret society conspiracy movie. Personally, I think the film is about some kind of critique on, you know, lust and commitment and jealousy, insecurity. Exactly what? I have no idea, but that's just my take on it. Mm-hmm. 
And um, oh, I have this in my notes here. On the show <laughs> Archer, there is a reference to this movie, I believe. Um, Lana asks him, what is your definition of anonymous sex? And he says, I don't know, bird masks. <laughs> I love that show. Um, I, I will tell a funny anecdote. I went for a trip to New York a few years ago, and it was during it was actually around like uh, early December. So it was around like the holidays. And I stayed at an Airbnb. And it was only, I was the only one staying there and it was in Chelsea, you know, nicer part of the city during Christmas time, very Christmassy vibe. Like people love New York during Christmas time. Right. And I remember as I was, you know, just checking out the living room at the Airbnb, I open up the, uh, one of the drawers and there's a mask in it and it looks like one of the masks from eyes wide shut. And I freak freak out and I'm like, oh my God, this is an eyes wide shut house. This is, (laughs) and I was freaking out. Um, It had to be delivered, right? Well, well then I, I, at the time of the year, I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is terrifying. And and I, I sent a picture to a friend and I said, look at, look at this. And, and, And he's telling me, oh no, no, no. That's a, there's a popular play right now in new york that's a mask from the play but i can see where you came where you got that from um so it was just a funny coincidence but pretty hilarious it's called trom novel <laughs> it's called trom novel <laughs> yeah okay let's talk about the next reason tom cruise and nicole kidman the real couple in this film um he actually tells her everything at the end of the film i, I don't know how you would explain <laughs> that to your wife but he he does mm-hmm Okay, they were a real-life couple. I don't know if that enhances or detracts from this film. It adds a layer of complexity to it. I do find it impossible to separate the performances from the performers. Especially considering their relationship. Yes, and especially considering their marriage ended about a year after this came out. I do like them in this film, though. I think they're both very good in it. She is hamming it up in a lot of scenes. Especially in the scenes where she's just laughing at Tom oh, oh, when Cruise. They, when they smoke weed when they get home? Yes. Yeah, he he's way more subdued. And you have to wonder with all the takes that Kubrick made them do, it's like, which ones did he decide to use and not use? Did he use the good ones? Did he use the bad ones? I have no idea, but she's really hamming it up. Mm, absolutely which it, it, for the most part i actually I, I i enjoyed it i don't think it was yeah, oh, too i did too i did too overacted yeah yeah it's not a very memorable tom cruise performance because he's just kind of this blank bland guy Canvas. yeah everything that happens to him is memorable but bill hartford is not an interesting character right at one point he's watching a right. football game drinking a budweiser like that's about as boring as it gets well i mean i think part of it is it was on purpose you can't help but think that everything that Kubrick chose was on purpose. The name Bill Harford. It's so Harrison Ford. Just simple. It's just I mean it Harrison Ford, but it's also just so simple. Yeah. Um the Very waspy. The, when when you think of uh Tom Cruise it, the performance subdued. He is a canvas. He is very he is clearly there to just be easy for the viewer to just step into his shoes. Yeah, he's just there to have the audience experience what he's experiencing, just having stuff happen to him. You know, he there's some exactly. scenes where he tries to turn on the charm, like when he goes um, with Domino, the prostitute, into her apartment. Mm-hmm. He's like trying to be charming, and he's like, I'm in your hands. And she's like, okay. 
<laughs> she was like, whatever. Yeah, whatever, man. How much money you got? No, she was like, you know, she was really sweet and nice, I guess. I don't know where it ranks for me on the crew's performance scale, right? Because he's he's really boring in the film, and yet there's some scenes, like the, the billiard scene, right? With Pollock. When Ziegler tells mm-hmm. him I was there last night and Cruz tries to like clumsily deny that he knows what he's talking about, like I, I think it's some of the best acting Cruz has ever done. Yeah. It's yeah, really absolutely. subtle, but it, it's just very good stuff from him. And then Kidman, you mentioned some of the dialogue when she's laughing at him. We we have to read some of this. Oh my gosh. It, it is ropey dialogue, but oh, it makes me laugh. When she. <laughs> when she's this having was, her. This got me. Yeah, when she's having her little titty squeezed, do you think she ever has any fantasies about what handsome Dr. Bill's dicky might be like? Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then here's the bombshell, right? This is when she's confessing to her husband. She's talking about this guy that she saw when they were on vacation, a naval officer. And then I thought that if he wanted me, even if it was only for one night, I was ready to give up everything. You, Helena, my whole fucking future, everything. And yet it was weird because at the same time, you were dearer to me than ever. And, and in that moment, my love for you was both tender and sad. I barely slept that night and I woke up the next morning in a panic. I don't know if I was afraid that he had left or that he might still be there, but by dinner, I realized he was gone and I was relieved. Woof. Yeah. And then here's the other bombshell when she's telling him about her nightmare. Quote, we were making love and there were all these people around us, hundreds of them everywhere. Everyone was fucking. And then I, I was fucking other men. So many. I don't know how many I was with. And then I knew you could see me in the arms of all these men just kissing, fucking all these men. And I wanted to make fun of you, to laugh in your face. And so I laughed as loud as I could, end quote. Um, if you, okay, Anton, if, if, you're, if your wife revealed <laughs> something like that to you, like, there's no coming back from that. I mean, I'd be like, well, we're going to counseling. <laughs> That's probably the best you, case scenario. That, that was your dream? I was, I was having work dreams. <laughs> this is one of the flaws with the film, in my opinion. We never really see his reaction to this or his response to any of this. I'm talking about Tom Cruise. <laughs> like, you just see them yep. hug, and then it cuts to another scene. You don't really ever get to see how his character handles this, being confronted with this from his wife. He get The yes. first time when, when they're getting high, he gets interrupted by the phone call, and he has to go see the, the dead guy, right? Right, right. The dead body, cause, um, and then the woman who wants him, whatever. <laughs> but then the, the next scene where she wakes up and confesses the nightmare, they just hug in bed, and then it, it kind of just goes to the next scene. Again, I, I know it was probably intentional on Kubrick's part, but it's just, I would have really liked to see how his character handled it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where the mystery is, and I think that's where, I don't think that they would have shot additional, I think, I think the part there is that i don't think they would have shot any additional scenes no to to add to the film which is why i think uh, it was very intentional on kubrick's part and it's why this film does such a great job is because you know we agree right this film has a track and there are cookie crumbs around for us to be able to make interpretations to connect the film and this is this adds to that and that's really honestly why i have why this film is so much fun you're right it is fun it shouldn't be fun but it is it is it's it's haunting stuff but it is fun yeah not something i could watch often i'll just say that no Uh, yeah what'd you think of the rest of the performances any standouts you know 
the funny thing was like other than the core performances like uh you love i love pollock um nicole kidman tom cruise otherwise the performances were just you know not amazing but not horrible just you yeah. know the serve the purpose of the scene yeah n- no real standouts like that guy um what's his name raid serbadesia mm-hmm. he's a pretty well-known character actor but he's you know not not a lot to do uh lily sobieski who plays his daughter she has like one line alan cumming he's the um the hotel clerk i guess he's like the night manager whatever he always overacts you know you probably know him as boris grishenko from goldeneye what's really funny even just about like alan cumming's performance like how much screen time does he end up having in that film in right? goldeneye like, or this one in this one in uh, this one in, in eyes wide shut three minutes maybe right not not very long no. But even then, like his performance was, some might say overacted, some might say on point, because Kubrick even had his team invest so many hours into finding the right person for that role. And they chose Alan Cumming for a reason. So I think even though we may look at all of these different uh, all these different performances and say, you know, it was it was all right, it fit the scene. It was a very deliberate part on Kubrick's, you know, from kubrick's perspective he doesn't choose just anyone for that's any true scene. the only one i really thought was bad acting was marion richardson who, who played the woman who wanted to spend the rest of her life mm-hmm. with tom cruise i i just it reminded me of like a soap opera again i maybe it was deliberate but eh. maybe again may, that even adds more to how deliberate it was because we can't help but think this is so unreal <laughs> I do like that guy, Raid, Raid Serbadesia. He would um, yeah. reappear with Cruz the following year in Mission Impossible 2, if you remember. You, you are not Dimitri? Yes. <laughs> yes. And then Todd Field, of course. Yeah. Um, now, what's interesting for Todd Field is after moving away from acting, he has gone on to directing. I didn't end up watching it, but of course it was a Academy Award nominated film. He ended up uh, directing Tar in 2022. He's done a couple films that have been nominated for Oscars. Yeah. In the Bedroom, yeah. Little Children. Interesting. He's uh, He's been able to move up since playing the piano. I think it was a wise move on his part because uh, I don't think he's much of an actor. I thought he just played piano at uh, Rich People's Orgies. Not anymore. They definitely killed him. <laughs> Anton, anything else you want to talk about before we start to wrap this up? No, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to wrap this up. Put a bow on it. Wrap it up in gold wrapping paper, which is how I wrap all my Christmas presents because that's my pro tip to all the listeners. Presents are better appreciated when they are wrapped in gold. 24 karat? No, I can't afford that. I bought these at Target. Okay. Well, I don't think they're, good they're gold colored. I'll just say that. Gold there. colored. All right. Paper. Good Good tip. Good tip. It's a little too late now because this episode is going to come out on Christmas. But hey, for 2024, that's my advice. Uh, well, we there talked we about the reasons why this wasn't better, sort of. I mean, I think it's no secret by now we both enjoyed this film. We talked about mm-hmm. Kubrick and the conspiracy theories about whether or not this is a finished film. We talked about the story and the ambiguity of it. And we talked about Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and the rest of the cast. So, you know, bringing this home, Anton, I think this is one of, if not the most challenging films to rate, at least for me, that we've covered so far. Agreed. This is the fourth time that I've watched this all the way through. I'm still not entirely sure what it's about or what it's trying to say. 
It's one of the only films that I've seen where I like it, but I don't know if I like it. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything quite like it. I, I don't really know how you'd classify it. A, a, a psychosexual drama, an erotic thriller, a mystery, a black comedy, all of the above. Based on the trailer, it was certainly marketed as some kind of an erotic tale, but I'm not really sure that it is. There's so many different ways you can interpret this. None of them are right, and yet all of them are at the same time. Eyes Wide Shut is what I call a pseudo-classic. Had any other filmmaker made it, I doubt it would have the same kind of legacy that it does today, but because this is Kubrick and because of the conspiracy stuff, this is always fun to rewatch. I think it's a very good movie because of how unique it is. Certainly, the story is fascinating. Whatever the story is, it's fascinating. Uh, There's some good performances in it from the leads. There's nothing I can really compare it to. It's not quite on the level of Kubrick's classic stuff, quote-unquote classic stuff, but it is fascinating to revisit from time to time. I rate this a B. Okay, very well said. Like you said, Pat, we, we've both basically given away that we like this film. And I, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I love Stanley Kubrick. I love his films. They they haunt you, they stay with you, they make you think, and Eyes Wide Shut is no different than any of his other films in that same sense. One thing I will say about Eyes Wide Shut is in the same way that I think about novels that have the same effect of making you think, keeping open to interpretation. It's a lot. There's a lot there. And with that, it, it's fun. But at the same time, it can be very daunting for this film. It's a lot to take in. And with that, the enjoyment factor is I'm, it's so great to be able to see this because it's been a while since I you know watched it for, for the podcast. But it is not something that I could see myself like rewatching frequently. Because it is it is a lot to chew through, and it is something to have discussion over. If you are a listener that hasn't seen this film, we've spoiled a lot, but like definitely like watch it, come to your own conclusions. And I think like any great novel, this plays out with just great mystery, um, a very I, I think linear plot, and leaves enough to be able to put together your own interpretations of. What are the themes? What are the takeaways? And at the same time, feel just fascinated with the mystery that is still out there because of what's still been left unanswered. So I think it's a it's it's a great film. I'm giving it a B as well. And as far as Christmas films go, yeah, it's definitely up there. <laughs> I was gonna say I don't know if it's a good Christmas film, but well, let me just say this: um, I, it's not one. It's not a Christmas film that you should uh, watch with your family. Yeah, it's a uh, it it's definitely not something to uh just throw on with everyone on a Friday night. No. And if you are in a relationship and you feel that your relationship is not in a good place, uh don't watch this with your significant other. And if you are watching it with your significant other and your relationship is in not a good place and you're watching Eyes Wide Shut, do not constantly look at them while they're going through the uncomfortable conversations during this film. <laughs> which I'm sure you will. So many men, just so many. Just so many. Just so many. And with that being said, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, one and all. Because it's the season of giving, you're going to have some additional episodes coming out this week. Maybe uh, I think some James Bond is coming up next. Yes. A little double header James Bond action. How does that sound, Anton? Sounds good to me. Excellent. (laughs) 